This is a recording from a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. Does, uh, does anyone remember when you were a kid uh, and you saw a movie or uh, encountered something and it made you want to go and imitate that thing? You guys know what I'm talking about? For me, it was Ninja Turtles. You guys remember those old like, like live action like Ninja Turtle movies that came out? And my parents decided to let me watch it when I was like a little boy. Dude, my world got flipped upside down. Like, I thought for sure, I'm like, I was made to be a ninja. Like, me and my brothers started hurting each other, like, pretty brutally after that movie. And so then they made this, like, rule, like, no, like, kung fu movies, which was an awful rule. It wasn't the Lord. They didn't pray about it. So, um, so we just snuck them anyways, you know? We just watched them as much as we could. But it was, like, it was like life-altering. Like, I, I want, and, and every once in a while, I still see a movie. You ever see, like, there's, like, kind of Jason Bourne movies, and after, and afterwards, you walk out of the movie theater, and you're looking at everyone kind of skeptical, like, yeah, I know. I know how many people are, are in this room. No? It, just me? So, or my, my kids are, are, are the best, because uh, when the Olympics are going on, I'll come home from work, and everyone's in a leotard doing gymnastics, right? Like, everyone's training for the Olympics, and uh, they're, they're imitating what they're watching on TV. They're not nearly as talented, but they're doing their best uh, to, to try and live out what they've observed and that what's inspired them. Um, I remember my, my little brother, uh, Dustin, him and his wife uh, serve here at Light Church. When he was growing up, uh, he saw this old Davy Crockett movie. And so he decided that he wasn't going to let anyone call him Dustin anymore. And so, like, 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 so stubborn, would not respond to us unless we called him Davy Crockett. Not just Davy or Dave. Davy Crockett. Wore this, like, raccoon, like, hat, like, every single day of his life for a good six months. So, um, next time you see him, shoot that, shoot that one his way. But he's... Um, but I, I love, I love watching, I think especially as children, we're just unashamedly, like all of a sudden one day, you know, we're into this one thing, and then the next day we're fully like into this, uh, and we just fully embody that thing. And Paul picks up on this, and, and, he's, and he's written this letter to this church in Ephesus, and he's writing them about the beauty and the power of God's love and grace, and as he does that, after chapter three, he starts to turn and starts to be like, hey, this is now how we live in response to that. And I think chapter five, verse one, I think he just hits the nail on the head as far as what do we do in response to Christ's love? We imitate Christ. We become like him, the same way a movie or an athlete can do that for a child. Christ should be doing that for us, that our ambition and our goal in response to his love for us is just to become like him. And we would desire to live our life like that. And so Paul goes in and he starts, and he lays that out. He says we should be imitators of Christ. And then he starts saying how that makes sense in every arena of your life. So tonight we're going to be talking about how we become imitators of Christ in our personal life, the, 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 the heart issues, right? How we deal with sin, how we live amongst community, um, next week, we're going to talk about marriage, how imitating Christ actually forms how we treat our spouses, for those of us who are married and those of us who are looking towards marriage. And it talks about how we imitate Christ in parenting and with authority figures, how we imitate Christ and how we handle spiritual warfare. So this, this concept, we're going to take a little bit of time on because it's foundational. I, I think it's the simplest way to, to really give our response. Like, How do we respond to the grace of God? We imitate who he is. So just a few things I wanted to uh, kind of throw out there before I do this. Read Ephesians, the first verse of Ephesians chapter 5. Um, Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to just read the first verse together. I want to see what version that we have up on the screen. Um, I think they're actually figuring that out. The NIV reads it like this. Follow God's example, therefore as dearly loved children. Um, which, is, which is a fine translation, but I actually think in this case, 
the New International Version doesn't do that verse justice because our, because what the, the ESV does a little better job, really what it's saying here is not just follow the example. It says, therefore, be imitators of God. And that word imitation, the word imitators, is this Greek word mimetes. And it's this word that we get our word mimic um, or we get our word mime from. Can I, can I confess something to you guys? No? Okay. <laughs> it's a safe place, right? You're not going to throw me out. So in junior high, when I got asked to leave school, my parents started homeschooling me. And, um, and I'm like, I think homeschooling's rad. Uh, but normally every parent, when they homeschool their kid, they face this dilemma, like, how am I going to integrate my kid into the social environments um, so that they can, like, interact with people well? And so my mom made the decision to put me into a Christian mime ministry. Because <laughs> if homeschooling won't mess you up enough, <laughs> let's let them be a mime in public places <laughs> with other mime homeschoolers. <laughs> I feel like I've come a long way, so, you know, give me some, some grace. Just anyways, that's for you. So if you ever just like, you're like, wow, Benji's awesome. Just, I was a mime. I'm not, okay? I'm the, the farthest thing you could get from being cool. <laughs> but, but Paul writes and says, listen, we are to, therefore, it writes this, this, this intersection word, because of what he's done, we are to mimic, to imitate who Christ is. I love how Eugene Peterson writes it in his translation of the message. He says, watch what God does. And when you do it, and then you do it, like children who learn proper behavior from their parents, mostly what God does is love you. Keep company with him and learn a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. So, so that's, again, that's the, the walkaway principle tonight. Let's imitate Christ. Well, that brings up kind of another broader question. What do we imitate from Jesus' life? What are some of those things that he did? So I'm going to give us three things tonight. It is not an exhaustive list by any means. The best thing you can do is read the Gospels again and again and again and use it as a mirror to your life. If Jesus was living inside of you in this day and age, does that actually parallel how he lived back then? And so just three, just three takeaways that I would just say three ways we can imitate Christ. Number one is receive the Father's love. Number two, submit to the Father's will. And number three, show the Father's compassion. So just, let's just touch on these three. If you're just like, how do, what does it look like for me to imitate Christ? The very first thing you need to know that Jesus does when he shows up on the scene, before he does a single miracle, before he raises from the dead, before he goes to the cross, before he preaches a sermon, before we have any account of him doing anything significant, he goes down to be baptized by John. This is Mark chapter 1, verse 9, um, verse 10, I'm sorry. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love, whom I am well pleased. Pleased with what? What has Jesus done up to this point? We have, we have no account of him doing anything other than mouthing off to his parents when he's 12. It's the only history we have of his life. But in this moment, at the very beginning of his ministry, at the, all three of the synoptic gospel writers make note that there was a moment before ever anyone notices him for anything that the heavens open up, the father looks down on him and says, this is my son who I am well pleased. And the reason why this is so significant is because we live in a culture that says you can get affirmation when you have accomplishment. But what we see right here is we serve a God who says you can, have a, you can have affirmation before you have accomplishment. I'm gonna tell you I'm pleased with you because you belong to me, not because you behave a certain way. 
Because up to this point, we have no notable behavior by Jesus whatsoever other than that he was uh, a, a carpenter, a stonemason, living within this kind of rural town called Nazareth. And yet here is the God of the heavens who stops everyone to let them know, this is my son, I'm well pleased with him. So this is our first point. If you were to imitate Christ in one behavior, I would say this may be the most foundational. Are you, do you understand that God is pleased with you and loves you? And, it, and so before you start going and figuring out what you need to do, learn how to receive that reality. The second thing I would say is imitation of submitting to the Father's will. And so another notable thing about Jesus' life is as the God of the universe with all wisdom and all power chooses not to live out his own plan. From the very beginning, again and again, he starts to talk about, I only do my father's will, his, the, where he went, who he talked to, what he performed, to the very purpose of his life. The big and the small was submitted to his father's will. John chapter 6, after he feeds 5,000 people, and the people are starting to question him, he says this in verse 37, all those the father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. If you ever want to know what the will of God is, here it is. That I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at that last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. That is the will of the Father. And so his entire life was constructed around obeying his father's will and how he assigned his life. The third thing is imitation of showing the father's compassion. So not only did Jesus model for us how to receive God's love, not only did he model how to submit to his will, but he also modeled for us a life that was spent pouring out that love and pouring out that compassion. Just one quick story. At the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus shows up at his house. You know, Jesus had a house, right? So he shows up at his house, and there's an entire crowd of the city coming and pressing in against him so that no one can come in. Well, these, it says that this man who was crippled was brought by uh, four men. It doesn't say they were friends. doesn't say they were family. It just says that they were men. Um, and brings him, and obviously they can't get in because they had so much volume and there's so many people crowding around. And so as they're looking, like, well, let's bring him to the roof. So they climb up to the roof, and in Jesus' house are digging a hole in his roof. My OCD stuff is going crazy. Like when my kids spill cereal, I'm just like, oh, why would you do that? My son right now thinks it's hilarious to look at me in the eye and just go like this, so I make him sleep outside. Just kidding. Uh, I, don't, I don't all the time. Um, but he's like, they're making this mess in his house, and he opens it up, and they start like dropping him down, right, this cord. Can you imagine being the guy who like went too fast? <laughs> Whoops. It's like rolls off or not fast enough. I mean, it's a lot of pressure. Anyways, they get to the ground. And it says this, since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is fascinating because he was just brought however many miles on foot, lowered, risking his life to come in there to get healed. And he doesn't say anything about him getting healed. He looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, a couple notable things. Again, we don't know that this man has family at all. In Jewish and even in any Eastern culture, you do not leave family members by themselves. It's the only time we have Jesus looking at someone and saying, son. Because he knew that there's something in that scenario that was deeper than him walking again. And I think oftentimes if I look at the life of Jesus, do I take the time to notice the deeper issues? Do I see people in their pain? Do I go and do I have the ability to look at them and say, son, or beloved? Do I extend the Father's compassion towards them? Again, these are just, this is not an exhaustive list, but these are just three short things that we can just look at. Okay, how do we imitate Christ? 
Learn how to receive the Father's love. Learn how to submit to the Father's will. And learn how to give the Father's compassion. If you can do those three things, it's a great place to start. And so then Paul begins to start saying, this is how you imitate Christ. And then he starts talking again about all these different things. Like, this is what it looks like in kind of your personal and your community world, your marriage, your parenting, your authority figure, spiritual warfare. And so tonight we're going to be talking about specifically the area of your heart. How do you imitate Christ in a culture that is so counterintuitive to the gospel? And so in this day, just to kind of preface this before we read the rest of the text tonight, in this day, there was, most of the congregation were, were non-Jewish pagan people in a Greco-Roman pluralistic society worshiping multiple gods. One of those gods um, being Dionysus, which is one of the oldest gods in the Greek pantheon of gods. And as, uh, as you look up historians and what they write about the worship of Dionysus, is that this God was a God of the harvest, and so specifically wine. And so whenever there would be the first harvest, the first opening of the wine of that year, there would be a festival, a three-day festival, that would be um, all the other temples and shrines would be shut down in order to honor Dionysus. And as they would begin this festival, the very first night, children, women, men would come and they'd open the first wine and they would just drink themselves silly. Second day, they would infuse different things and hallucinogens into the wine because of its low alcohol content. They would add things to make them literally lose their mind and become so under the influence that they would begin to engage in uh, all sorts of sexual acts and orgies and different things. And, and it was just this mayhem. It was so bad that Rome actually outlawed that holiday. Rome. It's not like, you know, it's not like the most moral town in the world. But it was that kind of party. And so this is happening in Ephesus. This is a part of their culture. And so you can imagine these people become Christians and they're received by, by grace alone, not by works. And they begin to start understanding, well, what does it look like to follow Jesus? How much do I still get to be a part of this culture, and how much does it mean to follow Jesus? And so Paul has kind of a hard job to do. He starts to explain to them, like, this is, these are things that you can do and not do. But we're going to start to see that it's not with the intent of laying down another law, but drawing them back to the true love. So let's, with that in mind, let's read, starting in verse 3, how Paul begins to lay out how they should live in imitating Christ. Ephesians 5, verse 3, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now, side note, this is not talking about getting into heaven, right? Because all sorts of these people will get into heaven because they're covered by Christ. It's talking about the inheritance, the life in the kingdom, the fullness of the life that God intends for us to live. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them, for you, once, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil." Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Great SAT word. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, 
speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so here we go. So we're, we, Paul starts using this language about light, right? Illuminating what's in the dark so it becomes light. Living as children of the light. He's calling them into this identity rather than letting them sit up into the cultural narrative of the day. And so we're just going to break this up into three different sections because I like three. Um, and so the very first thing we start doing is he starts illuminating the reality of sin. So this is the reality of sin that you're dealing with. The second thing is illuminating the power of light and then illuminating the beauty of the spirit. So the first one, illuminating the reality of sin. So before we start talking about um, these different issues of sin that Paul brings up, I just want to tell you a story. So my least favorite place I ever lived was in El Cajon, which might not shock some of you guys. Um, but it wasn't because it was alcohol, it wasn't because it was hot, or it was because we actually lived in this beautiful home, this really cool yard. But down the street from our house, um, there's a boyfriend and girlfriend living together with a five-year-old daughter, um, and, the, and the boyfriend was an alcoholic and who would beat his girlfriend. And I remember in junior high going to my room and shutting my window at night because I didn't want to hear the screams. I remember hearing knocks on my door, my parents opening up and hearing the weeping of a woman and I'm peering around the corner and seeing a bloodied and bruised face. And it just, it was traumatizing. I remember calling the cops and the cops coming to our house and me and my siblings watching from around the corner as they looked at her and said, do you want to press charges? And she looked at them and said, no. Do you need us to take you somewhere, ma'am? No, I'm okay. And again and again, she would go back to her abusive alcoholic boyfriend to the point we ended up adopting her. The little girl got her out of that scenario. But I remember talking to my mom and dad, and I was just like, why? Why did she go back? Why would she go back with him? He, he just treats her like this again and again and again. And my parents tried to explain to my junior high self how sometimes people feel like that's what they deserve. It's all they, they can have, whether they've done it to themselves or it's their fault. And the reason I tell you that story is I think that's maybe one of the best ways to describe our relationship with sin. So many of us have a relationship with sin. And it looks appealing and it, it promises pleasure, it promises protection, it promises power, whatever that sin promises, we enter into that relationship with that sin, all the while our heavenly father watches us enter into an abusive relationship and it does what scripture tells us it's going to do in Romans chapter 6, it says the wages of sin, what that sin will pay you is death. The hardest part is not just the sin that we fall into, but it's the fact that we go again and again and flirt with that sin. We look over at it and like, well, maybe it'll take me back. I remember how it was. And we, we have this emotional amnesia to the weight and the penalty of that sin. This is what Paul's talking about. So you, you have this abusive relationship that your culture has told you this is normal. Go ahead. Go get drunk out of your mind. Go do whatever you want sexually. Go talk however you want. Be as greedy as you want. I mean, does it sound familiar? But it's fascinating that in God and his wisdom, he writes this and he says, no, no, there's a different way to live. You could live like Jesus who lived his life surrendering to love, being loved, and loving others, or you can obey and fall into this other narrative. And he begins to start talking about these differentials, like you can live like this or you can live like this, and he kind of paints these two different pictures. But as he's doing this, I think one of the best ways I've heard described what Paul's doing here is, and I want to make this very clear, Paul is not laying out a new law. 
He's not saying that if you don't behave this way, then you are no longer part of the family of God. Otherwise, then why did Jesus come in the first place? But what he's saying is he's laying out something called a center-set mindset rather than a balance-set mindset. Let me explain what that means. Uh, In Ireland, we were there a few years ago, and we were driving around, and there's tons of sheep everywhere. I mean, it's so cliche like Ireland, right? Just green rolling hills, tons of sheep. They're all smiling because they're living the dream, right? And as they're there, they're all, there's all these fences, all these pastures, and all the sheep every single time are as close to the fence as they can eating the grass. In Australia, shepherds don't use fences. They use wells, And so they place a well in the middle of the property, and the sheep know not to stray too far from the well. This is the difference between a center set and a bound set mindset. See, bound set means here's the gates. This is not what Paul's doing. Paul's not saying here's a bunch of gates. You have to stay within there. Because if he was doing that, he should have wrote a longer letter. If he's saying don't do this sin, don't do this sin, don't do this sin, then he's really got a pretty poor list. There's a lot of other sins I can think of that he didn't mention. What he's trying to remind you of is there is a well in the middle of your life. You don't need to go beyond that. You don't need to go find other things to supplement what God is promising you through Christ. That's all that sin is. I love what Albert Tate says. He's a pastor of Fellowship in Robia. He says, when we sin, we are supplementing the sufficiency of God in our life. What he means is that is God, the life he promises is he has it all. He's that good. He's that beautiful. He's that loving. And so when we sin, what we're saying is, thanks, God. I'm just going to go ahead and supplement it with some other things. And Paul's writing this church that he planted 10 years prior, and he's just writing them, don't forget. Don't forget the beauty that Jesus offers you. It's a better life. It's greater and more grand and full than the cheap substitutes that the world is trying to offer you. There's a quote I, I said a few weeks back. I just want to say it one more time because I think it's, it's a quote by C.S. Lewis and, and, and I think it describes the heart of God with sin so well. It says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go make mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So Paul just, just goes for it. He says, listen. When you imitate Jesus, you no longer are trying to imitate culture. You have a better life. He takes a step further and not just saying, don't fall into sin, don't do those things, but he begins saying, the sin that exists in your life, shine light on it. Don't hide it. Don't, don't make it something like, okay, well, Benji said not to sin, so I'm going to sin privately, not post on social media, and then I'm going to still come to church, and he's going to think I'm great. That doesn't work for God. And if you're trying to please me, you have a whole other set of issues. But what he says right here is, is what is in the dark, what you're hiding, says shine light on us. I love what it says in verse 13. It says, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes light. Isn't that an amazing promise? So that thing that you've been hiding from your spouse, the thing you've been hiding from your friends, your open table, your mentor, and you think it's just going to go away and you can handle it by yourself. Paul's saying if you illuminate it, it becomes light. It doesn't just, it doesn't just have light on it. It itself becomes light. Let me give you an example. When you begin to start sharing with your brother, with your sister, man, I'm really struggling with this. All of a sudden that becomes, it moves from your misery right, your brokenness, and all of a sudden it becomes a part of not only your healing but someone else's, which is why one of the greatest lies of the enemy is just to say, don't tell anyone. Just don't tell anyone. Bert Smith, who's a pastor up in Washington, has this epic quote that I've used a thousand times. It says, what lives in the dark dies in the light. 
lives in the dark, dies in the light. It's one of the most true statements I've ever heard. Because it's just, man, in my own life, it, it was with anxiety. I'm like, I got it, I got it, I got it. And all of a sudden, I'm just like, oh, this is too much. And I go and text a friend or say, Jen, can you pray for me? And immediately, there's relief. Why do I do that to myself? Because I let that thing just live in the dark and immediately when I bring it to the light. I remember when I was a, a teenager and the very first time I, t- I had an accountability group and I started talking about some lust that I was dealing with as a, as a teenage boy and I thought I was the worst person in the world until so all of a sudden I realized that I was struggling with something that lots of people were and I desperately needed brothers to walk with me. And so that thing that was living in the dark died in the light. A matter of fact, according to this verse, it became light. And I started helping my other friends walk through that. And so, again, it's understanding that when we start living the life of Jesus, it's, it's no longer, we don't have to just pretend like we're perfect. No, no, no. We get to walk with honesty, shining light, that there wouldn't be private sectors of our life. Here's what I can let people see. Here's what I can't. Because what you're breeding right there is duplicity and dysfunction. And that's not mimicking Jesus' life. It's not imitating Christ. This, I mean, this week I literally had a, I was sitting around a table with some friends and we were, you know, having a great meal together and we we're talking about prayer requests and people are going around and these like heavy, heavy prayers and I was kind of having, I was kind of overwhelmed. And so I'm like, oh, I'm going to ask for people to pray for me. I'm kind of having like a, there's a lot going on in my life. And as I heard these prayers going on and being asked for, I was, just, I looked at them and I was just like, man, I, I can't say my prayer. I can't ask for prayer. These are way bigger issues than what is going on in my life. And all of a sudden I just, it was this lie that seeped in saying like, just let that thing live in the dark. You don't need to bring that up. It's not important. Don't be selfish. What are they going to think about you? They're going to think you're a narcissist. It's all about you. And these are all playing in my, my mind. But as it's playing in my mind, I'm literally studying for this sermon a couple hours earlier. And so just as a deliberate point of application, I just said, hey, guys, I, here's, I, I guess, it may not feel like as big of a deal as some of these other things, but I just want to let you know there's some things going on in my life. And I, you know what happened? Light. Light, the thing that was dark all of a sudden had healing. Jesus was able to enter in. And, and, and what was amazing, you know what? Not only did it impact me, someone else that was sitting at the table later on said, I needed to hear that. I do the same thing. All of a sudden, what illuminated became light. The last thing that we see Paul do here is so, so incredible. And then verse 17 says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here comes Paul, and I love how he ends this passage, because immediately we can start thinking about this, I'm like, man, Paul's just a killjoy. He's just like, man, don't have any fun, you know, don't do that, don't go out and party on the weekend. But I think we made it very clear, this is not what Paul's trying to do here, he's reminding them of a deeper joy, and he ends it by saying the same thing, he says, hey, listen, you have two options here. You know that festival that's coming up, when you have the opportunity to go and, and, and celebrate with your culture and, and celebrate in drinking and getting drunk, he says, well, you have this other option here, and that other option is being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to describe what happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, and it actually sounds a lot like you're drunk. Says, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God. I mean, it, it, it just describes this euphoric, over the top, exuberant gratefulness in your heart, right? But it's not an escape from the world, it is experiencing the goodness of God in the world. 
It's a completely different mechanism. It's just saying, listen, the life of Christ, when you imitate Jesus, all of a sudden what happens is the Holy Spirit fills in your life. You don't need substances to provide peace or an escape or an identity or boldness because the Holy Spirit is going to provide all those things for you. He's going to fill you, and all you have to do is say, yes, come right now, fill my heart. And so I, just, again, a point of application. My, my prayer tonight is that we leave here in this place the happiest people that Encinitas can see around. And, I, and I'm just going to be pastoral for a second. This is not in, in condemnation whatsoever. I love our church. I love when we worship. But when I read what happens when we're filled with the Spirit, it seems like there's something about our church. And, and it's, again, I'm not judging how people worship, but... It just seems like it's missing something, right? This exuberance, this thing that's inside of us is this, this point where God is just saying, man, you have life to the fullest because of what Jesus has offered us. And so again, this is, and this, we're not going to go into a time of worship and you have to do it because I told you to, but I, what I would encourage you to do in the, in the days, not even here, and when you're in your car, when you're at work, when you're at home, when you come here next week, you have the Spirit of God inside of you. And would it lead you to sing with all of your heart, like it says? Would it lead you to joy that can't be robbed? Would it lead you to a place that isn't trying to make you escape, but make you experience the goodness of God that is right here? Um, at the end of first service, we don't have the luxury. At the end of first service, unplanned, uh, the, uh, the teacher said, hey, can the kids, can our older kids come and recite a verse for you? I'm like, sure, it's a great way to end the sermon talking about being filled with the Spirit. So these five beautiful children get up on stage and they can't even get through their memory verse because they're laughing so hard. It was the cutest thing I've ever seen. And I was like, that's it. That's it. Like if we, there, that is, for me, it was like the perfect image to end on. What does it look like to imitate Jesus? It looks like that you get to have everything the world is chasing without any of the hangover. You get to have the fullness of joy that the world promises but never delivers on. We get to have the Spirit of God inside of us. You guys bow your heads with me. Holy Spirit, we thank you. Jesus, we honor you. Father, we come to you. We ask right now that you would remind us of the well that you have placed in our heart. God, that we would not find ourselves on the borders of behavior, of what can I do and what can I do, but we would just say, Lord, I just want to live like you. I just want to live like you, Jesus. I don't want to live according to the narrative of culture. I want to live like you did. I don't want to find myself being intoxicated with, whether that's with drink or power or sex, popularity, success, achievement. I want to be intoxicated with you. Spirit, I want you to fill me. Holy Spirit, right now, would you just come and fill every single heart in this place. Holy Spirit, would you just come and minister to every single person, specifically those who have found themselves returning to that abusive relationship to sin. How would you remind them of the beauty of life you give them? Would they not supplement their, your goodness with other things the world would say are good? And Lord, I pray just like a child would, that we'd imitate you. Oh, the, son, the same way my son tries to imitate my behavior, we'd imitate you. The same way a baby learns the words of his mother and father, her mother and father, would we start to learn your words? We want to be just like you, and we know that that happens when we are filled with your spirit, Jesus. Oh, we love you so much. And we pray, amen.